Let's open up our Bibles or navigate on our devices to the Gospel of John and to chapter 3 and to uh, verse 22. John 3, 22, verses uh, 3, 22 through 36 is our text. The topic, John the Baptist tells his disciples that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. The title of our message, Please Decrease Me, Let Me Go. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to be here and to quiet our hearts before you. We believe your word is alive and that it's powerful. We want to be taught by it so that we can live by it. Do these things, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters. Anybody want to try their hand at that riddle? Lord of the Rings fans know the answer to that because it's from Bilbo's game with Gollum, and the answer is wind. Here's another one. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. Fish. We can make a riddle from our text. Ever the groomsman, never the groom. Increasing never, decreasing ever. The answer? John the Baptist. He calls himself the friend of the bridegroom, or what we would call the groomsman in verse 29. And he says of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now we're going to concentrate on decreasing and increasing. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you find joy in an ever-decreasing life. And number two, you find joy in ever-increasing the Lord. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 22 through 31 at the ever-decreasing life. Downsizing is described as moving out of a larger home and trading it for a smaller space. Christians are using the word to encourage living more minimally. One site put it this way, our culture celebrates excess, so as Christians, we need to think counterculturally. Whether we are candidates for the television show Hoarders or simply surrounded by too much stuff, there are advantages and blessings in downsizing our possessions. Now, like so much advice that we get, it concentrates on physical and material changes, not spiritual ones. Decreasing is a spiritual downsizing for the sake of people seeing Jesus increase. Decreasing can be best understood by observing the man who invented, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that, of course, is John the Baptist. And so we pick up our study in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. In chapter 4, we're going to learn that Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. John the Baptist had identified Jesus as the one who would baptize, he said, with the Holy Spirit. The baptizees might have concluded that if they were dunked by the Lord, that that was the spirit baptism that he was talking about. It wasn't. And so Jesus uh, didn't baptize any so that there could be no confusion. There's always confusion when people talk about baptism. We are still confused about it today. Uh, well, we're not, but uh, there is a lot of confusion in the Christian realm about 
water baptism, spirit baptism, these things. And so it makes sense that Jesus would baptize no one so that there could be no doubt that this was not the spirit baptism that they were talking about. John's baptism and the baptism Jesus' disciples did was for repentance and faith, preparing a person for the kingdom of God on the earth. It says there was much water there. That indicates that this baptism was by total immersion. They were immersed to signify they needed a complete cleansing of the whole person through repentance and faith. In a minute, we'll see a, a, a little talk about purification. The Jews did all kinds of outward rituals of purification that uh, they believed made them more righteous. They had lots of ways of washing their hands. When you talk about Jewish hand washing, it wasn't with Purell to get off germs. You came with clean hands to a ritual hand washing where you did certain things with your hands. And so John was out there and he says, your whole body is going underwater, signifying that the whole person needs a cleansing. And so John the Baptist's example of decreasing starts with a person recognizing that they must repent and acknowledge they are sinners in need of a complete supernatural cleansing by God. And so these Jews that were coming out in multitudes to be baptized by John or his disciples or Jesus' disciples were saying, our Judaism isn't enough, our rituals and rites aren't enough, we need something more, we need God to cleanse us and to give us a new heart. Quick note, none of the baptisms in these verses is Christian immersion baptism commanded by Jesus following your receiving him. This has nothing to do with baptism as a uh, uh, a rite that the Lord is going to give to the church. almost said sacrament. Wow. Heresy, heresy. But anyway, every now and then the Catholic slips through. You know, you just got to keep that thing down. Actually, because I couldn't think of the word I was looking for. But anyway, so we're not talking about Christian baptism here at all. This is before the church age, Jesus on the earth dealing with the nation of Israel, offering them the kingdom. And it says in verse 24, for John had not been thrown into prison. This is a time stamp. It helps harmonize the other gospels with John. These baptisms took place before any of the events recorded in any of the other three gospels. You know, the gospels can be hard to harmonize, to put together. There's a wonderful book I would recommend to you, and especially as we're coming on the new year, and a lot of you like to have a Bible reading plan, there's a book, it's an old book, you'd be, it's hard to find. It's called The Life of Christ in Stereo. It should be quadraphonic, but it's stereo. Uh, and it's by a guy named Johnston Cheney, C-H-E-N-E-Y. It takes, it, it doesn't just harmonize. You're thinking, well, in the back of my Bible, I have a harmony of different verses. This guy took every single word and verse in the Bible, in the four gospels, and he put them all together as one gospel, and the, to give you an idea of exactly what happened chronologically in the life of Jesus Christ. It is brilliant and amazing. Uh, don't go to Amazon. We did that earlier today. $95 for a paperback. What's up with that? But you want to go to a place like abebooks.com, abebooks.com, uh, used bookstore, and uh, you'll sometimes find copies of this. So anyway, Life of Christ in Stereo, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Translators say that Jews is singular. 
It was a certain Jew disputing about purification. He may have argued along the lines that there were already plenty of purification rituals in Judaism, or he may have argued, why do I need to be you know, baptized uh, by immersion uh, when I'm a Jew and obviously saved? Outward rituals, rites, and rules cannot cleanse your heart and add to your righteousness. We shouldn't think of Jesus as a coach trying to bring out the best in us. He doesn't blow a whistle and say, Pensiero, drop to your knees and give me 20 minutes of prayer right now. Don't you dare come up before this stopwatch goes off. He doesn't say, get up, get to church. You run to that altar this week and repent of your sins. And yet sometimes, I mean, you think it's an exaggeration, but we kind of think, you know, hey, if I pray more, if I do this more and I do that more, I'm going to build up my spiritual muscles and what? Think that you, uh, you know, are saving yourself or keeping yourself saved or are more self-righteous. I thank the Lord that I get up every morning and hit the, be- hit the, hit the ground with my knees and pray 20 minutes and some of you people don't. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not saying prayer is bad. Prayer is good, but you know what prayer is? It's talking to God. So when you pray, make sure it's because you're talking to Jesus and you want to talk to him and and you're listening for him to talk back, not as a religious ritual. Same thing with Bible reading. If if my wife and I were separated for a long period of time uh, and I hadn't heard from her and I got a letter from her, I would want to read it. Right? You've seen, you know, you go through the stacks of mail. Bill, 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 Bill. Rudy Solace, Rudy Solace, Rudy Solace. <laughs> I mean, that's all I get is Bills and Rudy Solace, right? And, 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 and then all of a sudden there's a letter from somebody that, that you love. I mean, all the other stuff goes in the trash and you read that. And so the idea is that not, not to quit praying. I mean, you know, obviously if you understand what I'm saying, you wouldn't quit praying anyway. You're thinking, yeah, that's what I do. I talk to the Lord my Savior, my God, my friend. Jesus is all our righteousness. We have none of our own. We are declared righteous by God. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John the Baptist uh, Baptist was not a trained rabbi. He wasn't even a trained teacher. This was a title of respect. And we know that his theology had been forged in the desert, spending time with the Lord. We value training in our culture and education, and uh, in many ways there's nothing wrong with that. I'd like it if my doctor had some training and didn't just, you know, have... uh, Chilton's manual for a car and think, well, how hard can this be to change a knee, you know, if I can change a carburetor, but, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, um, you know, i use myself as an example. I've told you a lot over the years and, and in a meaningful way that I'm an ignorant fool, uh, but you're here, and so what does that make you, you know? So, so and no, no, this is great. I, I mean, we're, we're friends, so I can I, I think I have the gift of teaching, which is not, has nothing to do with intelligence or oration, or I know I'm incredibly good looking, but it doesn't have anything to do with that either. Uh, it just, God says, you're going to have that. And uh, if people come, you come back, right? So something must be going on. And so that's, that's that. Now, 
I'm not a Greek scholar. I do know Alpha, Omega, Omicron. Uh, I know... <laughs> I don't know Hebrew at all, except Yahweh, you know, and stuff. And, but, you know, as long as you stay within yourself, I mean, as long as you don't promote yourself as something that you're not, hey, this is what the Lord has shown me. I walk with the Lord. You walk with the Lord. Let's, you know, let's talk. When you share with others, you're not a scholar either. But you tell people that they can be saved for eternity. That's an incredible statement. It's an amazing thing and stuff. And so John was forged in the desert for this ministry. And, and so the Lord can use anyone, and he does. Would I like to have more education? Sure, maybe, depending on where it leads. Sometimes you're just over-influenced by your education, and, and you start to become, you're so smart, you're dumb, right? My dad used to tell me I went to college to get stupid. Uh, and, and a lot of people do. Unfortunately, they go to college, they come back. Stupid is too strong a word, but different. You know, sadly, many kids grow up in church and they go off to a secular college or sadly, Christian college, and they come back uh, doubting their faith rather than having their faith uh, on a more sure foundation. And so uh, John was just a simple guy who uh, was called upon to point out Jesus. Typically, we accuse the disciples of John the Baptist of jealousy. Maybe, but I don't think so. John's ministry was fading. It was ending. They would close up shop, dissolve the corporation. His disciples had the very natural reaction of wondering if any of it had been worthwhile. It is not uncommon to wonder if your service means or meant anything. The great apostle Paul had doubts about his work in the city of Corinth. The Lord appeared to him, encouraging him to endure by telling him, do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Christians like to cite the phrase, as unto the Lord. It's a paraphrase for something a more encouraged Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You cannot measure your spiritual service for the Lord from its physical results. We know that, but we do it all the time. It's just a natural human bent that we have to see more, bigger, better as more spiritual. Uh, and yet you really can't judge by the outward. Again, using our church as an example, I would rather have a building than not have a building. Uh, and so for 18 years, you're meeting at the YMCA and people are thinking, are we ever going to get a building? Other churches are making fun of us. Look at those guys. People, I, it's the Christian community. We love, you know, we love each other, but we do that. And then you get a building and you think, wow, you know, God loves us. Well, no, he's, he's loved us all along. And, and so it's, you can't judge by the outward. You just be thankful for what God is doing. Jeremiah's ministry spanned the rule of five of the kings of Judah the Jews persecuted him the whole time. All that time, decades of ministry, he only had two converts, Baruch, his scribe, and a guy named Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch who served the king. Do we consider Jeremiah a third-rate prophetic hack? From anybody's viewpoint, other than God's, he was a complete failure. The Lord told Isaiah about his ministry, you're going to go preach and no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to hear what I have to say. 
Many of the prophets were failures if you judge them by their results. You are going to be measured by things unseen to anyone besides Jesus. And so we always have to turn our evaluation inward, never outward, to ourselves and to others. It has to do with their relationship with the Lord. Uh, we, we all serve the Lord individually, and whether we're uh, obedient or disobedient or successful or unsuccessful is up to him. I guess what I'm saying is don't be burdened by comparison uh, or even in your own heart that what you're doing is, is not worthwhile. If it's for the Lord and you do it heartily as unto him, then it is. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Our description of decreasing isn't following an alliterated outline. We're not getting a list of successive steps to become a decreaser. We're just seeing it in action, lived out by the man who mastered it. John the Baptist's statement here is a pillar of decreasing. What have you been given? The answer is everything. The very breath in your lungs this morning is a gift from God, and so is everything else that we have. We must recognize there is nothing about ourselves that makes us deserving Serving God is mercy extended to us by grace. If I went to school and learned Greek, and so I knew more than those three Greek letters, I would still not deserve anything. It just would be something that else that was happening in my life. And so we, uh, we don't make ourselves deserving. God extends his grace by his mercy. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John the Baptist created the popular mean, uh, meme, there is a God, and you're not him. That's essentially what he says here. He says, hey, I'm not God. I don't particularly like ministry descriptions. I, actually, I don't like them at all. Uh, if somebody comes and, you know, they're applying for a ministry job, they say, well, what's my job description? The answer is slave to Jesus. Well, what kind of slavery? Really big slavery. I mean, you know, if you can't find out what the Lord wants you to do, then, or if you're going to confine yourself to a description, doesn't it bother you? Even in the secular world when somebody says, well, that's not my job. So something's going on and you think, hey, we should take care of this. Not my job, not in my job description, above my pay grade, those kinds of things. That doesn't exist in, in Christian living. If you, you know, you, you see something good to do, you do it. You, you don't say, well, you know, that Pastor Gene will do that. And I don't say, well, you'll do that. I mean, we just do. And uh, so job description is not good. But if you're going to have one, I like John the Baptist here. He says, I have been sent before Jesus. We have been sent after Jesus. And so Jesus is in the center of it all. You either came before him or you came after him and you're to point people to him. That's the basic uh, thing that John is saying. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. The church will be called the bride of Christ, but the church did not exist before Jesus' resurrection. So again, Jesus isn't talking to us as the church. Uh, John is just borrowing an, an, an illustration from everyday life to answer his disciples about how he feels. John is describing the promised kingdom of God on earth as if it were a wedding feast. It was the best way he knew to convey his absolute joy in serving the Lord. 
He took the fact that his service was ending as a good thing. If you're a groomsman, if you're the best man, you're happy when your service is over because the, the couple that you love is successfully married and you rejoice with them. So we'd call John the Baptist the best man, not the modern best man who plans a degenerate bachelor's party. The Jews have made, actually have a name for the role of the best man. It's called Shashbin. One site described him saying, the Shashbin would carry messages back and forth from bride and groom. He would also guard the gate where the bride would be. He would be the one trusted to be with the bride and then listen at the gate for the groom to come. When he heard the groom's voice, he'd let him in. He was the best, closest friend of the groom and the most trusted friend of the bride aside from the groom. You know, there's so many precious illustrations in the Bible to help us understand what it means to be a believer in Jesus and to walk with him. Today, we could add to that the list the understanding that you are the Lord's shashbin, each one of us, not only in your duties, but more so in your joy. See, they were, his disciples were asking John, basically, don't you feel bad about this? You're decreasing and he's increasing. And no, you know, people come out and they say, we don't want to be baptized by John and his disciples. We want to go to Jesus. And John was saying, I'm like the best man. All I can do is rejoice in the ones that I love, that, they're, you know, that everything worked out. That's the whole ministry I had. And so he says in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Churches often, as they say, cast vision for what they want to accomplish. Uh, it sounds mystical, doesn't it? it, it it's, it's, the, it's the latest kind of hip way of talking about that. Let's cast vision. Okay. You mean pray and wait on the Lord? Yeah, but this sounds so much cooler. But anyway, and then Christians, maybe you choose a, a, a life verse or maybe you each year or each quarter or whenever you choose a verse to live by. He must increase, but I must decrease. I would submit to you as maybe the best single verse in the Bible to choose. It was the visionary life verse of John the Baptist. It would be good for us to cast vision by adopting it ourselves. He's basically saying, you want to share Jesus? You want Jesus to, uh, to you know, your friends and your family and the world to know Jesus? Then decrease in a spiritual sense while Jesus increases. Become less so that he becomes more. There are riddles to solve in your walk with Jesus. This is one of them. Decreasing to increase. That's different than our regular thinking. Then there's this from Matthew. Whoever wants to save their life will do what? Lose it. Well, I want to save my life. Then you have to lose it. Wow, that's different. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of the omniscient God, the weakness of the omnipotent God, how does that pan out mathematically? And then Jesus says, he who is least among you will be great. And so you have all of these opposites. Lightning McQueen balked at Doc's advice that on a dirt track, if you go hard enough left, you find yourself going right. Remember that scene? It's great. Lightning sarcastically replied, thank you. Or I should say, no, thank you, because in opposite world, that really means thank you. Our new life in Jesus is meant to be radical. To decrease, you must embrace God's opposites. We don't live in opposite world, but the world opposes us. 
Jesus does not increase if we act like the world. And, and so there are a lot of these, these riddles, we could call them for lack of a, a better thing, but we've resolved them in Jesus. And so we need to decrease so that he might increase, die that we might live. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthy, earthly excuse me, and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist may have said this, or it might be a commentary by the Apostle John, who is the author of this gospel. Either way, it's good to remind yourself God has a better vantage point on your life than you do. When the dwarves were lost in Mirkwood Forest, Bilbo climbed a tree to get a better look from above. We can't see the forest for the trees. We need God's look from above. Jesus comes from above, from heaven. We, like John the Baptist, are of the earth. The Lord sees ahead. Uh, we're on a walk with the Lord. I always think of it as a, more of a garden path or a path in the wilderness or pass through the forest. But what if it were you know, uh, a, a highway? Uh, the Lord looking down at you and seeing you on your highway and the direction he wants you to go. Certainly wants you to avoid the turnarounds that are here in town now because that drives you crazy. But uh, he's looking down and you're going and, and you're headed straight on, you know, and you're, you're, you've been praying about something but not really listening to the Lord and you're just going for it and the Lord's saying, hey, uh, in a few miles, the bridge is out. It's gonna be bridge out because I can only let you go that far on this course. Or in a few miles, there's gonna be, uh, you know, pedestrian crossing, so you better slow down or whatever it would be. The idea is that, you know, if, if God could communicate, if I'm in my car and, and my GPS says, there's no bridge anymore over this canyon. All right, I, I think I can still make it. No, you stop and you get new directions. And so the Lord is above, he's from above, he's over all. He sees your life and he sees where it's headed, where he wants it to head. And so through the Bible, through his indwelling spirit, through other Christians, uh, through many different means, he speaks to us so that we stay on the path and avoid all those pitfalls. And when, uh, what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, verse 32, and no one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony, and another version reads, no one wants to deal with these facts. The apostle John was referring to the official rejection of Jesus by the leaders of the nation. They refused to deal with the fact that Jesus did the works of the promised Messiah. Decreasers must deal with what you could call the deadly Ds. Discouragement, defeat, difficulty, depression, downheartedness, disappointment, dejection, despondency, despair, demoralization, and any other negative D word that you can think of. If you think of one, send it to me so I can add it to the list. It's a, it's, you know, the, the disciples of John are having a really rough time with the the shrinking of his ministry. And they were demoralized, if nothing else. Consider this exhortation when you find yourself crushed under the weight of something like that. You are forgetting your position. You're the shoshbin grumbling and complaining that he does not get more attention at the wedding than the groom. What would that be like if you had a narcissistic uh, you know, best man who thought he should be the center of attention? I've been to weddings, I've officiated weddings where some other person obviously wanted to be the center of attention and did terrible things. Uh, and, and so you don't, you don't want that, that'd be weird. And so when I'm a Christian 
and I start to get into all this stuff, then I've forgotten that I serve the Lord. He doesn't serve me in that sense. That I'm here to make him increase. And if I'm decreasing, I shouldn't get depressed about it or see it as a defeat as long as I'm walking with him, as long as what I'm doing is unto him. Uh, and so don't, don't be that person. John the Baptist was a decreaser and he also was a downsizer. For a time before his ministry launch and afterward, he lived in the desert. He wore rough clothing. He ate locusts dipped in wild honey. Going farther back in his life, he was a Nazarite from birth. That was a vow that you took that restricted your life in various ways, such as you could not partake of anything related to grapes. Not the grapes, not raisins, not grape juice, not wine. Is there anything else you can make from grapes? Raisin bran, I guess, but no, that's not true. Uh, you couldn't cut your hair. Whether he had dreadlocks, I don't know, but he had a, must have had a pretty long beard and a lot of hair. He had never cut his hair his entire life is what we get from him. You think, ah, oh, that can't be true. He was a Nazarite from birth, and that's what that means. He, he didn't choose that. His parents cho God chose it for him, and his parents made him, and then he adopted it, and that's how he lived. And so he was a downsizer. Do you need to downsize? Maybe. That's between you and the Lord. We all need to be decreasing. That is a universal Christian principle. And if you're still wondering what that's like, continue to study the life of John the Baptist. You find joy in ever increasing the Lord. John the Baptist believed he could increase Jesus. He says, I'm gonna decrease, he's gonna increase as a result. You can't add anything to Jesus, but you can give testimony about him, telling the world who he is and what he has done. And so verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. You sometimes need a certified copy of a document to attest to its genuineness. Typically, it's done with a seal or a stamp of some kind. When you receive Jesus, he certifies you by giving you his seal. The Apostle Paul said, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Spirit sealing is invisible, but you make it visible by your testimony of a changed life. And so you're walking along, you get saved, and God seals you. It's a spiritual thing that we don't see. But people around you see it because you're not the same person you were five minutes or 10 minutes or 10 days ago. There's something about you that's changed. Uh, you've been born again, and it has affected you. And so they can see a certified life, a God-certified life, the genuine article. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The word sent reminds us that just a few verses earlier we were told, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever, all, anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. On earth, Jesus had God the Holy Spirit in a measure unlike anyone before. Jesus promised to baptize us with the Holy Spirit in full measure. So let's talk about baptism of the Spirit or with the Spirit for just a minute. The Bible says there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that places the believer into union with Jesus and into union with other believers in the body of Christ. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The moment you are saved, 
you are placed into or immersed into the universal body of Christ. You belong to Jesus. You are part of him and he is part of you and you are, we are part of all together and, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's something that happens to you. There's no outward expression of it. It's, it's all in the spiritual realm. Now, at the same time, when you become a Christian, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, takes up permanent residence in you as his temple on the earth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. So you're baptized into the body of Christ, doesn't involve water, it's a spiritual thing, and then the Holy Spirit lives within you permanently. After that, you can ask for and receive his enabling at any time. He empowers you to obey God's word. We like to say God's word is his enabling in the sense that God can't and won't tell you to do something that you're unable to do. You may think you're unable. Jesus would say to a paralyzed man, he said, get up and walk, and he'd get up and walk. The enabling was in the word of God. He didn't speak, you know, it wasn't one of these weird Pentecostal power things or anything. It's just that was his word for that individual, and that individual simply believed it. And what we read in the Bible is that same thing. So when the Lord says to me, Gene, love your wife the way I love the church, I can do that. I can get better at it. I'm going to fall away from it from time to time because I'm a sinner in an unredeemed body. But I can't throw up my hands and say, you know, I need 12 seminars to figure this out. I need to read 15 books, uh, you know, and see who, which is the best one. No, the, the Lord won't tell you to do something you are unable to do. I probably need to brush up on my Green Lantern memory. How many of you remember the Green Lantern, comic book guy, right? He's part of an intergalactic core of space or of uh, policemen. And uh, they would wear a ring. They had a Green Lantern ring. And occasionally they had to put it in this lantern-like thing to recharge their ring. Quite honestly, a lot of Christians think of the Holy Spirit as if he were the green lantern, that he's super-powered and ready to go, you know, let's take on the world. And then as time goes on, it's like, oh, Gene, I just can't keep up with it, bro. This loving your wife stuff is way, way different than I thought it was going to be. You're on your own, man. You are totally on your own. No, that, that's not true. He is a person. And as deity... He cannot diminish. He's just as strong in you all the time. You and I grieve him and, we, and, and you know, uh, upset him. It's us because we fail to obey. And so I want to be set free to at least know that I can do the things that God has asked me to do and, and you know, not be burdened and not uh, you know, shift the blame. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That sentence is a great summary of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, is it not? In that book, we find that Jesus receives from the Father the scroll that takes everything back and puts it under Jesus' reign. And so maybe John was giving a little advertisement for his future book about revelation. So it was great, great verse. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. The Apostle John is an evangelist. This is a challenge. It is, for lack of a better term, an altar call. 
He calls upon his readers through the centuries to receive or reject Jesus, saying, Believe, and you are guaranteed everlasting life in quantity and quality. Do not believe, and the wrath of God abides on you. Now, God's wrath is his just judgment upon sin. We are all sinners, and we're born with God's wrath upon us, and we will remain that way unless we believe that Jesus took upon himself our, our wrath and gave us his righteousness. And when we do that, then we pass into the believer category. And so this is just a full-blown challenge to readers to say, hey, are, do you, you know, I've written, we're into our third chapter, which they didn't have chapter breaks in, but let's say, John says, hey, we're into chapter three. Do you believe? Are you getting this? Do you see that Jesus is who he said he was going to be and that you must be born again in these things? And if you don't believe, then the wrath of God abides on you. Last week we saw that that means you are already condemned. And so it's, John is being extremely evangelistic in, in the sense that he sees a decision that needs to be made. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer yet. And, and you know, be honest about it. You've never been born again. You, you, you don't have the Lord living in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. We're glad you're here. Because this is a place God wants you so that you'll hear this good news and know that Christ died for you and rose from the dead and gave the gift of his Holy Spirit so you could be born again and so that you could live the Christian life. And so when we end this morning, come forward and let us talk with you about that. I'm going to leave you with an easy riddle to ponder. I uh, quoted this last week and I thought hey, this would be a great riddle since we're talking riddles. You'll get this one. It's easy. A heavenly father, no heavenly mother. An earthly mother, no earthly father, born older than my mother and as old as my father. Who am I? I'm Jesus.